Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Monday, August 29th, 2011, and today is episode 734 of the Survival Podcast. Got a lot of cool stuff for you today because today is a listener feedback show. I want to remind you, first up, right now, you can win a Rock River Arms AR-15 Upper valued at $890 from ready-made resources. If you have not entered that contest yet, please do so. I think there were some little technicality bugs and stuff like that uh, with the very first form they had up. They've got it all straightened out. Take a shot at it. You have between now and September 22nd to enter the contest. All you do is fill out a form, and if you win, they will ship it to your door. Remember, it is an upper. That means you have to provide your own lower. That's bad because you got to provide your own lower. It's good because it's an awesome upper, and it's also good because the bottom, the lower, is the firearm component, and the upper is not. So we can ship it to you anywhere in the United States directly to your house with no FFL transfer. So if you want to win that thing, take a shot at it. Next up today, let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsors, they do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, MERS Radio. It's actually M-U-R-S and then a hyphen and the word radio.com in the domain. MERS Radio is an unlicensed uh, radio uh, frequency set. Uh, that's a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, tougher, I would say. A little bit, uh, more robust than, like, the family radio frequencies. Allowing you to communicate for about a mile or two in most landscapes. So it's really kind of a homestead area communication tool. It's not like a ham or a citizen band radio. It's really for, like, complexes. Maybe security at an event would be good. There's five frequencies and five sub-frequencies. They're not anywhere near as commonly used as other frequencies. And with limited range, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy that's maybe not the case when you're using uh, family radio frequencies, which are very, very commonly used. Uh, but you also can combine security with communications because there's motion detectors you can set around your property. And when someone or something is moving about there, you'll get an alert through your radio or your base station that says something like this, alert sector one or alert sector two. Uh, so it's a really cool way to combine secondary communications and security for your homestead. I have it on my homestead. It's something you might want to consider for yours. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the very first people that ever stood up and said, we want to sponsor the Survival Podcast officially. And they've done that now for about almost three years. And uh, that's talking about some longevity there to uh, stick with us for that long. Uh, Vic's a great guy, and he supports the show not just as a sponsor, but as a supporting uh, vendor to the Members Support Brigade, where, of course, he gives away his Discount Buyers Club, which he sells for 29 bucks every day and gives discounts to everything he sells. He gives you that free if you are a member support brigade member, which covers $29 of value out of your first $50 worth of dues from one benefit alone. So Vic is a great guy, a great supporter, and whatever you're looking for when it comes to prepping, you'll probably find it at Safecastle. While you're there, you might want to jump over to their sister site, Safecastle LLC, and check out their hardened shelters. They build some of the best hardened shelters there are. Some of you worried about storms especially might want to consider one of those on a larger area. 
All right, next up, remember, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Remember to get involved with our forum. Check out our gear shop. We have lots of cool new stuff in the gear shop, including some paracord stuff. Check that out. Uh, also, uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, remember, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, get in touch with me before you join. I will give you a special discount code. We call that our National Service Discount, rec recognizing those who have served our nation either at home or abroad. All right, with that, I want to go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show really, really quick. Um, there's a lot of stuff to cover today. It might go a little longer, as our Monday shows have been doing, but I have to, you know, only take in 10% of what comes in, so, you know, I, I, I'm going a little longer on my Monday shows to try to get more people's stuff on the air. Uh, first one comes in from Michael, and uh, I responded to him, so he says, thanks for a quick response, I appreciate your extension, blah, 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 uh, but he's basically thanking me for the MSB. But let me give you the uh the the really the meat of this one here this is this is an interesting story and uh it's uh it's 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 actually hard to listen to hearing somebody have so much loss in their life you may recall i sent you an email last year talking about redundancy of preps i talked about how vulnerable the average home is to fire well on june 5th my family's house burned down it happened on a sunday night at 10:45 If my wife and I had not stayed up late to watch TV, we may not have escaped. As it was, we were able to barely get our five- and seven-year-old children out. Within two minutes, our entire attic and roof was in flames. We lost uh, two ten-year-old cats to the fire. No cause was ever determined, but it was speculated to be electrical in nature, possibly beginning in the attic. So one night I went from being Jack Spirico Jr. to having the clothing on my back. I can now joke that I was be became... Viggo Mortensen from the road, only without the shopping cart. Pretty much everything we owned, including both cars and the garage, were either burned, melted, soaked, smelled of all smoke, or all of the above. You know, I never thought about this, but um, I've never kept my vehicle in a garage. I've always kept my vehicles outside of the garage. Maybe that's maybe that's a good reason to do that. Now I just don't have one, but maybe that's a good call for having a detached garage if you're building your own homestead. Anyway, I had my firearms in a storage locker stand on brand in a small closet in our guest room. The locker isn't fireproof, and my gun survived unscathed. When the firemen put water into the attic, uh, all the soaked insulation and drywall collapsed into the house. The small closet, which has also contained my number 10 cans of Mountain House, did not lose its ceiling, only sustained minor dusting and soot. My ammo was stored in 50-count uh, ammo cans on the floor and were fine. So his ammo did not explode. Imagine that. My bulk food and five-gallon buckets didn't fare so well. They were stored in our laundry room, and hot coals from the attic melted through the plastic, allowing smoke and water to foul the contents. We ended up in an apartment and were inundated with donations of cash, clothing, and food from family, friends, and strangers. Anything that survived the fire ended up in a friend's backyard shed. I was pretty feeling pretty vulnerable when I was accustomed to feeling prepared for anything. Just about two months later, we closed on our new house. We live five miles further out of town, and I have considerably more storage space for my preps and room for my much bigger garden. As I sit here, I have a big box of number 10 cans from Emergency Essentials that just arrived. My guns have been with my dad for the last two months. I just got them back yesterday, so I no longer feel naked and defenseless. I'm about to get a big Berkey, and I'm trying to quickly replace other things I lost. If there's a light, if there's a bright side starting from scratch, is that I can avoid making the same mistakes twice. 
I never scoffed at your off-stated position that personal disasters are way more likely than the road warrior scenario. I'm now a poster child for that very point. At, on 10:44 on Sunday night, everything was fine. I was prepared for many types of disasters, and life was good. At 10:46, I was standing in front of my bare, burning home, barefoot in pajama pants and a T-shirt. I'd like to think I've learned a lot about dealing with such disaster, coming out of it as whole as possible. For example, I had never put any thought into the insurance claims process. I was both ignorant and naive about how it works, but I think I managed it pretty well. If you ever consider doing a show on this topic, I'd love to provide you with more details. For example, the contents inventory I had to supply to the insurance company was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. The longer you take to turn it in, the longer it takes to get a settlement. If you hurry, you risk undervaluing or remitting your property. These are some real simple things people can do to make the process more bearable if they ever find themselves doing the same thing. Anyway, anyway, I know about being I know being a survivalist helped me focus during this terrible time, allowed me to get my family back on track in record time. I credit your efforts as a huge part of that. I was a survivalist before I ever heard of you, but your insights and knowledge uh, you impart daily have made me a far better one. Take care and keep on doing what you're doing, Mike in Alabama. Mike, I'm sorry you lost all that stuff, but I'm also happy to hear you've put your life back together. And folks, I do say it all the time. That is the type of disaster that you're far more likely to have than the road warrior scenario, than the end of the world as we know it, than a you know, complete collapse of the economy to the point where people start killing and eating each other. I mean, come on, the, the, you know, we all know about the cannibal scenario in Rawls's book. Um, it's not that there can't be really, really bad, um, bad stuff happen, you know. It's not that things can't really go downhill fast, but. I can tell you this, it's far more likely that you're going to deal with something like a fire or a natural disaster uh, or an economic uh, depression that causes high unemployment, long-term joblessness, etc. And I, I know people are saying, well, we have that now. No, I mean, I mean much worse versions thereof. Um, it, it's not likely to end up with the whole world just gone. It just isn't. It's not how things generally work, and it's why I try to take a more practical approach to preparedness. Um, next up today, um, I want you guys to listen to this. I was going to read it, but I found out that there was a an audio file that I could uh, I could create. Let's call it that. I was able to to, to get it off of this news uh, website, and it's about bartering, and of all places, bartering in Northwest Arkansas. I thought it was a pretty cool story. So hold on, and I'll play it for you. Well, you know, a lot of people are looking to save money these days, and some are going back to the old days of trading out their services. Almost reminds you of the World War II era. Yeah, David Gray's Nina Criscolo found one Madison County business owner who says it's a great way to cut back. Imagine sitting in this chair and getting a great haircut without even paying a dollar. Well, thanks to bartering, that's what some folks are cashing in on here at iCut in Huntsville. We trade services. Candace Samuels and Brandy Solorzano have a sweet setup. Brandy is a baker who provides goodies, chocolates and cupcakes and stuff like that, in exchange for haircuts from Candace. As long as it's something that you need, then it's even, why not? You're not losing anything. I'm always game for bartering. Cutting down on costs. You don't have a lot of money to, to do these kinds of things. Without shaving down services. It just makes people feel so much better. Once they get their hair done, you want red? And this bartering barber says she's benefiting more than you'd think. I've bartered for lights to go up in the shop. I've bartered for my daughter's birthday cake. 
I bartered for my daughter's dance lessons. And the trade trend is spiking within the community. I barter with other people than Candace, and um, it seems to work out. Even looking on Craigslist, you know, the bartering section goes up and up and up. Honestly, I would rather barter. You just have a better relationship with someone that way. So if you need to cut down on costs, give bartering a try. It seems to be a growing trend here in northwest Arkansas. For KNWA News, I'm Nina Criscolo. I think you're going to see more and more stuff like this all over the country. I, I look at it this way. And there's a whole lot of material that came in. It always comes in symbiotically. You guys always seem to be in sync that it's going to help me with this on the concept of uh, capital versus currency. But if you have a skill, like a barber, like this lady that can cut hair, you have capital. It's not currency because it doesn't spend in exchanges easily as something like a dollar bill or a silver coin. It, it has a value that floats relative to where you're at and who's paying you and how in demand you are. But you do have a capital. You have something that has value to other people. And it allows you to enter a relationship with somebody where you exchange capital independent of currency. And it's the same thing as when you yell over your fence to your neighbor, hey, man, your potatoes are doing great this year. I didn't plant any. And he goes, man, I got so many taters, I don't know what to do. What do you got over there? And you go, man, I got tons of bell peppers. And he goes, I, you know, I'll tell you what, if you give me a bag of bell peppers, I'll give you a bag of potatoes. It's the same thing. You both have capital. In that case, you have natural capital versus intellectual capital. But that's what bartering is really all based on. And I'm going to save my thoughts on this a little bit till we get to another question down the road about it um, because it, it really addresses that. I just thought this was a nice setup to it, and I thought it was a good story for you guys to hear on a Monday morning, something positive instead of all the negative crap that we hear. Um I'll tell you what, I got another listener story here. I had a lot of listener stories about, you know, the reasons to be prepared. Uh, and here's one for a reason to be armed. For all the people that say, what would you ever need a gun for? Okay, well, here you go. This is what, like, yeah, man, I don't need guns, man. Violence is wrong, whatever, okay? Uh, here's a time where it, it, it actually, I believe, that being armed prevented any form of violence whatsoever other than intimidation on one side and then quickly reversing to the other. It's a very positive story. It comes from Nick. Uh, Nick says, Jack, wanted to share this with you and everyone else in the community. This evening, while heading out of the mall with my wife and boys in tow, we walked up on four guys who were in the process of breaking into my Jeep. Let me tell you, these guys were brazen and absolutely not intimidated by our presence. In most situations such as this, you would think they would have headed the other direction after being surprised uh, by the vehicle's owner. Not my luck. I got the other type of bad guys. These guys headed right in my direction with every intent of taking me and my family out. In the two or three seconds it took for them to close in on us, I was able to draw my sidearm and step between them and my family. Thankfully, this action turned them around, and I did not have to shoot someone in front of my boys. On the drive home, after I stopped shaking, I realized how badly this could have gone. We had no options because of how close we were to them. We had no opportunity to run with a three-year-old and a one-year-old in a stroller. We had no opportunity or time to call for help. There was no way in hell I could have taken on four guys by hand while protecting my family. The pepper spray my wife and I carry would have taken out one or two at best. Lastly, of course, there was no cop in sight. 
My concealed carry allowed me to stand my ground in defense of my family when I had no other options. I was able to protect my wife, my boys from some pretty unthinkable possible outcomes. Tonight, when I was able to tuck my boys into their beds and everyone came home okay, I ended the evening by thanking God that I live in a country that has the sense to allow its citizens to defend themselves. Uh, Nicholas, uh, former member of the United States Marine Corps, and we won't give his last name at his request. Um, well, yeah, when you go try to assault a Marine, that's already a mistake. Whoops. And then when you try to assault a Marine who happens to be armed, they're lucky they did turn around. Because I can tell you right now, this man would have put these four guys down really freaking quick and turned them off if he had to. So, there's a message for bad guys. Be careful. Some of us don't like you and will shoot you and we're prepared to do so. Uh, and a message for, this is the main reason I wanted to read this today was I think it's good for everybody out there to hear. It, it, it is a great way to understand the need for concealed carry. It's a great example of somebody not having to shoot anybody, right? Nobody had to die here. You know, and I'm really glad for the sake, especially of the three-year-old, is really old enough to really remember it, that it didn't have to happen, because what a horrible thing. But it would be better for him to see that for, than for him to be harmed or watch his father have his head kicked in uh, in, in front of him. And, and I, I know of things like this happening before. We had a friend where we lived in Arlington who stopped some kids from stealing in a, a quick mart, and when he walked out, about 40 kids that were out there jumped him and started kicking him in the head and the ribs and everything. He ended up in intensive care and almost died from it. And had that man been armed, I bet you, even with 40 people, as soon as about three of them doubled over, the rest would have scattered. Um, so this is a perfect reason for that. But the big group of people I want to talk to today about this, I get emails a lot of times from men, and they say, I want to get a gun, but my wife doesn't want me to. What do I do? You go get training, and you go get the gun, and when something like this happens, you'll be able to live with yourself. Because if you don't do it, because she doesn't like it, and this happens, and you guys end up dead or hurt, if you're alive and she's not, or she's raped, or she's beaten in front of you while there's nothing you can do, you will not be able to live with yourself for not doing what needed to be done. I don't care that someone doesn't like it. I don't care. Do it responsibly. Don't rave it in their face. Don't say, I'm going to do it anyway and be a dumbass about it. But get it done. Do it right. And do it smart. Get your certification. Carry your freaking weapon. And if something like this happens, be trained and be ready to act. And if someone doesn't like it, there's a lot of things people don't like. Sometimes they're for our best interest. This goes right back into last week's show about being a leader by being a man. And you ladies, if you don't like it, go get training and get comfortable so you do like it. Get your own gun and carry your own gun because you can't depend on the fact that you're going to be together with someone who's armed. And if it's your kids, all that mama bear talk is fine until there's 16 guys beating the hell out of you. Okay? I understand the mama bear talk. I understand that you mean it. I understand you'll do all you can. But any of us, and there's an old email that went around, and it said it said something along the lines of, I do not carry a gun because I feel inadequate. I carry a gun because when I face four armed opponents, I am inadequate. Okay? And that's, that's a message here. Uh, Nick, thanks for your service, brother. Thanks for sharing your story. I hope it makes a difference in somebody's life, and they do. Um, they do, you know, kind of take those extra steps. Go get the training. This shit happens. 
It may never happen to you. If it never happens to you, thank God and be grateful in your old age that you never had to deal with it. But if it happens once, you know, and I talk about the five survival needs and security is one of them. And we always say water is the one that we can do without for the least amount of time. That's a false illusion. It's true in many ways, but the way that it's false is that the second you need security, you can do without security for one second before you're dead. It takes about a second for you to go from alive to dead. That's why security is so important. Moving on to a little bit of a happier subject, not that it wasn't happy that things worked out the way they did for Nicholas, um, but uh, but David here sends me a great email, and it, it ties right back into uh, to the capital talk I was starting to go down, and I wanted to wait for Uh, it says, hi, Jack. I've recently come to understand the difference between money and capital. And it's completely changed the way I'm investing my time and money. You've co- covered some of this with shows like Building Community, which is social capital, and Permaculture, which is natural capital. Permaculture is actually all the capitals, by the way. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And you talk uh, app investments like financial capital. The thing that's really been good for me to grasp is capital is a surplus after your needs are met. And you need a surplus to invest with the goal being more capital. But we've been brainwashed to thinking the way to do this is work to make money, take your surplus money, invest it in third-level capital, which are paper representations of companies, goods, and obligations, to get more money to put into more paper. The aha moment for me was getting back to the actual goal, more wealth, and defining what that actually was. Wealth is not paper. I'm sure you can see where to go with the idea. Things like investment and natural capital aren't taxable, higher rate of return, whereas anything that moves through paper is. You've mentioned leaving trees on the stump, and this is a great tax strategy if you don't have to pay a dime until you sell the trees and turn them into currency. I'm sure you get a million emails, so I'll stop here. Thanks for a great show and all the hard work you put into it. And again, that comes from David. Uh, David, that's beautiful. I couldn't have asked for like two things to come together better than, than those two different, uh, you know, the one about the bartering and now this about capital. So let me go a little bit deeper into this. First of all, there's a, a, a magazine called Permaculture Magazine. It's out of the UK. And uh, I, I really saw it, just read my first edition of it uh, this last month. My wife found it at a store. And I'm going to have to start subscribing to it because it's absolutely awesome. And uh, they don't have all the articles online, but I was able to find a PDF of this particular article, and I'm going to link to it today. And I think everybody here that's interested in creating more wealth and understanding value and really understanding the difference between money and capital and personal capital and real value and building real wealth should read this article. Um, it reads a little bit university isk I guess I would say a little bit uh, intellectual-isk, uh, where it's a little dry at some points, uh, but it's really a great read anyway. The eight forms of capital mentioned in this article are experiential capital, and I would call that experience capital. I think that's because the author is from the UK. Intellectual capital, spiritual capital, social capital, material capital, financial capital, living capital, and cultural capital. And I think that basically is saying, let's look at every place that there is value. Where where is there value? So in a culture itself, we have value. Uh, the very fact that there's a group of people that live a certain way and do things a certain way and preserve traditions, and there's a there's a capital value there. And we can convert, and if it's capital, it can always be converted to other forms of capital. So you would look at something like cultural capital and you would say, well, there's, there's, there, you know, how do you convert cultural capital? Well, if you ever heard of a place called Colonial Williamsburg, 
where they have it like it's set up like it was back in the 1700s and people are living the way they were during the colonial days and people pay to go there and see what it is. Okay, so that's that's really simplifying it down to a level and it's really taking a tourist attraction and using it for for an analogy, but it clearly shows that people actually will invest money to experience a culture. Why do you think people go to Europe on vacation? Why not just go to vacation in Florida or or, you know, Oregon? You know, if you want to go to Ireland, uh you're looking for green, it rains all the time, and it's really cool climate and kind of neat. Well, you know, Oregon, Washington's got a lot of places that look just like our Ireland, but it's not Ireland. Why? The Irish culture's not there. So the culture has a value, and people are willing to spend money and time. It takes a lot longer to fly to Ireland than it does for most people to go to Oregon, right? Uh, so there's there's value there. And I think that what we need to really start doing in our lives is looking around at where we live and what we own and go, Well, what type of capital do I have and how do I leverage the capital? All right, there's there's nothing wrong with with creating and building wealth, especially if you can do it in a way that doesn't harm anybody. Uh most good ways to build wealth, most successful ways to build wealth don't harm anybody. Uh it's only when we become obsessed with a single form of capital, financial capital, currency to the exclusion of the other seven that getting wealthy hurts anybody. So if Monsanto, for instance, who I despise, cared about social capital, uh, if they cared about living capital, if they cared about the intellectual capital that other people have to offer into the equation instead of just owning the rights to living things, if they cared about spiritual capital, if they cared about the cultures that they were interacting with, if they cared about these other forms of capital and they were trying to build capital value in all eight areas they wouldn't be genetically modifying food so it can be sprayed with a toxin so that you can eat it and they wouldn't be trying to own the right to life right to have a patent on a life form they wouldn't be doing these things and just about every major corporate abuse that you can point to if we could get that corporation and remember a corporation is just a piece of paper the, the corporation is actually run by human beings and if we get the people running that corporation to take uh, uh, just a, a quick look and understand these other forms of capital we would solve a lot of problems but that's not going to happen anytime soon that's a major transitional shift to society and that type of shift has to start down with the individual level so it's up to us to start doing these things and i think that you might be amazed at how much wealth you have on a little one acre homestead in the country somewhere if you looked for where's my social capital how how many people do i know what can i get done this is let me kind of give you my view of these and i think they pretty much line up with the authors but social capital to me means i have social capital uh, one way i just used my social capital was in helping jan klein i did that because i have a reach out to this audience and i said help this lady so so you can use capital t- so it doesn't have to directly benefit you you can do things for other people when you understand your capital it's not just writing a check now there's no way i could have donated almost $10,000 that totally came out of the survival podcast by the way about 40,000 in total went to jan klein we did it in the end our final total is just over $10,000 from receipts that came in we did about 25% what the rest of the world did that was leveraging of social capital and many of you aided that because you used your social capital in the form of social media on facebook and your blogs to spend that message as well so that was us using social capital converting it to currency to help somebody else 
See, that's social capital. Material capital is the things that you possess. Your home is part of your material capital. It keeps you warm. It keeps you dry. It has value. Clearly, it has value. Convert it to currency by selling it. That's what the real estate market is. But anything that we own that does something for us is a form of material capital. Financial capital, I won't go into. Everybody pretty much understands it. It's, it's currency or paper representations of other levels of value. Living capital. Living capital is one that I think most people just don't think about other than they often experience the negative side of having a low amount of living capital. Because as soon as the, uh, the traditional form of capital fails, then, then we realize that we don't have living capital. Living capital is made up of animals, plants, water, soil, and our land. It's the true basis for life on our planet. And I would say that when we have large amounts of living capital in our lives, and we don't even have to own it directly, we can part, if we live in a community where there's a community common area, and there's a lot of life there, and we can go and we can harvest or sustainably gather, sustainably hunt from that area, we share in that living capital value. And to me, it's, it also, that's the one that transcends over to lifestyle capital. How rewarding is your living in of itself? So as a living creature interacting with other living creatures, it, it increases your living capital uh, thing. Uh, when we look at the rest of these, you know, we, we can look at things like um, social capital. Like Again, I've already covered that, but um, Intellectual capital. What do we know? What do we understand? What, 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 what intellectual properties do we own? Our, our experience, experience capital. How, what, what have we learned how to do? What can we teach other people? Uh, and I would ask you to start examining your life this way. Uh, what, what is the value of your cultural capital? What are you able to pass down? What are you able to restore from lost knowledge? And how can that be transferred to other people? Spiritual capital. I don't care if you're uh, a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or a pagan. I don't care what you are. But what sense of individual spiritual knowledge do you have about yourself? And how does it... Uh, affect the way that you relate to other people. Uh, these are all forms of wealth, and they're all forms of value. And again, I think it would be a great idea for you guys to read this article, and maybe this is something for me to do an entire show on as I break it down more, because it actually becomes quite complex. Um, it, it, there's quite a few matrices in this, this, uh, this article. Uh, that, that show how things break down and, and create like a capital currency and what they eventually lead to. For instance, social capital could be seen with the currency as your connections and it complexes to influence and relationships. Material capital is material and natural resources and it becomes tools, buildings, and infrastructure. Financial capital is money uh, that, that complexes to financial instruments and securities. Living capital, your carbon, nitrogen, water-based life, um, complexes to soil, organisms, land, ecosystems, and services. Intellectual capital, ideas and knowledge become words, images, and IPR, intellectual property. Experiential capital, that's your actions, and it becomes embodied experience and wisdom. So that means that there's a great deal of capital value in a 65-year-old person who knows how to do things and has the time and the patience to teach others who don't know yet. 
There's a tremendous capital value in a school teacher. There's a tremendous capital value in anyone who educates others. With spiritual capital, we're talking about prayer, intention, faith, and karma, which leads to eventual some level of spiritual attainment that we define for ourselves. With cultural capital, we're rooted in song and story and ritual, which is actually what binds communities together. It's cultural capital that makes communities strong. Because we can have a community made up of people with different faiths, with different belief systems, with different amounts of living, intellectual experience, social, material, financial capital, but what will generally pull them together is their, 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 their culture. And if you go to the small towns in the Northeast and the Midwest, you can see a lot of that culture still left in America, these micro-subcultures that are held together. So I thought this was another interesting one for you to take out. Please take some time today and print out and read this article. I think you'll really, uh, I think you'll really learn a lot by doing that. Uh, the next one comes to me from, let's see who is this, Richard, uh, no, Rich. Rich says, uh, the cause of food riots and the price of food from Technology Review. This is another interesting article. It's not long, so I'll read it to you, but I'll have to kind of point you at it to look at the graph that really makes the point. Um, but here's the, the headline. The cause of riots and the price of food. If we don't reverse the current trend in food prices, we've got until about August 2013 before social unrest sweeps the planet, say complexity theorists. What causes riots? That's not a question you would expect to have a simple answer. But today, Margot Laggy and the, and buddies, and, and buddies? At, I think there's a word missing there, probably. But today, Margot Laggy and his buddies at the New England Complex Systems Institute in Cambridge said they found a single factor that seems to trigger riots around the world. The single factor is the price of food. Laggy and company say that when it rises above a certain threshold, social unrest sweeps the planet. The evidence comes from two sources. The first is data gathered by the United Nations that plots the price of food against time, the so-called Food Price Index and Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. The second is the data of riots around the world, whatever their cause. Both of these sources are plotted on the same graph above. This clearly seems to show that when food price index rises above a certain threshold, the result is trouble around the world. This isn't rocket science. It stands to reason that people become desperate when food is unobtainable. It's often said that any society is three square meals away from anarchy. But what's interesting about this analysis is that Lagai and company say the food prices don't necessarily trigger the riots themselves. They simply create the conditions in which social unrest can flourish. These observations are consistent with a hypothesis that high global food prices are a precipitating condition for social unrest, say Lagai and company. In other words, high food prices lead to a kind of tipping point when almost anything can trigger a riot, like a lighted match in a dry forest. Uh, on, on 13 December last year, a group wrote up to the U.S. government pointing out the global food prices were about to cross the threshold they had identified. Four days later, Mohamed Bouazari set himself on fire in Tunisia. By the way, folks, if you ever want to protest something, uh, I'm going to advise you against setting yourself on fire as a way to do that. Um, <laughs> it just really is uh, kind of a one-shot deal, if you know what I mean. Anyway, back to it. Mohamed, Mohamed Bouazi set himself on fire in Tunisia to protest at government policies, an event that triggered a wave of social unrest that continues to spread throughout the Middle East today. That leads to an obvious thought. If high food prices 
condition the world for social unrest, then reducing prices should stabilize the planet. But what can be done to reverse the increases? Lagai and company say the two main factors that have driven the increase in food price index. The first is traders speculating on the price of food, a problem that has been exasperated in recent years by deregulation of the commodities markets and the removal of trading limits for buyers and sellers. The second is a conversion of corn into ethanol, a practice directly encouraged by subsidies. These are both factors in the Western world and in the U.S. in particular could change. Today, the food price index remains above the threshold, but the long-term trend is still below. But it is rising. Lagging and company say the trend continues. The index is likely to cross the threshold again in August of 2013. If their model has the predictive power, they suggest when that happens, the world will become a tinderbox waiting for a match. Can't say I disagree with it, and I'll tell you what. If you look this article up today, and you look at the graph, and you look at things like uh, things that seem somewhat unrelated, like the Mozambique uh, situation and uh, riots in Haiti and the Sudan, uh, you'll see they all correlate, uh, including the Egyptian riots, the Libyan riots, uh, the Libyan uh, revolt. All of this stuff correlates perfectly. In fact, this graph starts in 2004, and there is only one event that happened that was major when the index was under 120, and that was Brunundi, and that was back in 2005, roughly. Um, then everything is at 180 or higher, and the highest concentrations are above about 220. There's only actually three below a 200 level, uh, four if you count the Brunundi thing. Everything else major that's blown up in the past uh, eight years here has blown up with a food index number over 200. And what these guys are saying is not revolutionary to us. We look at it and go, people can't eat. Yeah, there's going to be problems. But it's a different way of understanding it when, you know, their analogy of the dry forest. A forest being dry does not, it absolutely does not cause the fire. A spark Lightning, something like that, is what causes the fire. Uh, but that sets up the conditions where the fire can rage. You know, so it, it is interesting to kind of look at it that way and say it's not always necessarily a direct riot from food. But if we stress people in the food supply, we're setting up the conditions where anything can set people off. I would also like to tell you what my solution is. I think that the biggest reason we have this problem in the first place isn't necessarily speculators and traders and all the usual things. I think the corn issue is a problem, but why, why is it the case that people all around the world have to depend on crops from America to survive? I mean, when we're a net importer of food in many, many situations anymore. Um, why aren't people able to feed themselves? And it's because their land has been abused. Uh, they've been forced off their land. They've put in a, been put in a hawk by loans from the International Monetary Fund. The agricultural land they do have, they're being forced to grow, uh, you know, the staple grains for export to pay back their loans for. If we had people growing their own food everywhere around the world and growing whatever works in their area and practicing sane and, 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 and valid methods of food production, we would drive the price of food down all across the globe. Um, you know, Mollison said in one of his lectures, there's these huge, basically, footpath highways, and there's people walking into places like Delhi, India, every day uh, along these footpaths, and mopeds and little cars zipping in between them and all. But on both sides of them are these huge easements, and it's in a climate that's warm all the time, it never freezes, it gets plenty of rain, 
and and there's there's all this land and if they just planted fruit trees on these easements these people could literally be walking into work every day and grabbing a banana or a mango off the tree eat it chunk the pit or the peel uh as they walk along and provide their own compost well that's a simple solution that doesn't cost a lot of money so why doesn't anybody do it um there's a lot of reasons some of it's cultural we talked about cultural capital Cultural uh, issues can also be a liability. I'm, I'm learning this more and more in the PDC that I'm reviewing right now, uh, Permaculture Design Course by Mollison and Lawton, um, that a lot of times when they go in and do a design, they know how to fix the problem, but if it violates a cultural norm, they have to be very careful and have to work really sensitively to get people to do it. And it, it's, it's simple things like he was talking about um, you know, co coppicing trees. And basically, you let the tree grow, and then you chop and drop it for mulch. Well, in these societies, many places they've they've been, the people always cut stuff when they cut it right at the beginning of the dry season, and they do that because they're going to burn it. So they cut it in the dry season, and then they lay it on the ground, and in like a week, it's like bone dry, and you burn it off, and then you plant your your next year's stuff. Um, and, and that's the way, so that's obviously a slash and burn type of agriculture, bad way to do things. So they go in, they teach these people in the tropics, you shouldn't be doing grazing lands, you should be doing food forestry and, and things more sustainably and do this chop and drop and they teach them how to do it. Well, they come back a year later and nothing's working. And why? Because they're chopping and dropping at the same time that they were doing the chopping for, for burning. So even though they're not burning, it's sitting there dry, and these, these legumous trees that are there to provide shelter for the young fruit trees and give them shade and hold in the moisture during the dry season are stripped bare, and they don't start regrowing till the wet season. So the cultural norm of cutting at a particular time had to be changed. So there's a lot of things that need to be done, and some of them that seem very simple on the outside, if there's a cultural norm locally, we have to change that idea. And then we need to not always just look at the, you know, the, the, the speck in our neighbor's eye, but maybe the log in our own, as, as the good book says, right? So um, where is that affecting you? Where are you not doing something that would be productive because of a cultural norm? You know, and sometimes that's things like you can't do it because the cultural norm will push back on you, like front yard garden in some situations, or some other stuff that we're going to hear about in a bit. Just some thoughts for you. Got a quick email from Mark, and Mark on the uh, military changing their retirement program. You know, 20 years and retire with full benefits. Uh, they're going to go to more like a 401k type program with like a kind of a pension mixed in where the government kicks in some money. You can kick in some money. And if you're there five years, you take whatever you've earned with you. Uh, but at 20, you don't get full retirement. You have to wait until, you know, like 59 and a half to get your money. And I don't know what benefits. If those guys are still going to carry the medical benefits, they probably will. Uh, and, and maybe like commissary privileges and all that. They'll probably get after 20. But uh, the email here says, um, It looks like cooler heads have prevailed in D.C. Secretary of Defense Pat Panetta uh, has said that any changes would not affect current members. So, And there's a link to an article I'll link to today. I don't want to cover this for long, but I want to give you, there's always the other side of the coin. So this sounds like a good thing. So the guy that's been in the Army five years right now, he's not going to get five, you know, 25% of his promised retirement at 20 and then uh, 15 years in this new program. He's going to he's gonna get the full 20 and out, just like he was promised when he signed the contract, and that sounds like a great idea. But don't think that Panetta or anybody in the military upper command is doing this that are bean counters because they want to be nice and honor their contract. They did the math, and here's the reality. 
very few people in the military stay for 20 years. So all of the people in there right now that are in there have been in there three years or four years or five years that would get grandfathered, get the stuff at the end, and then start accumulating. Let's say that the guy was in for five and he stays for ten. Well, he would get five years of the new program and take that five years of value with him when he left, and he would get zero on the full retirement because he didn't stay as 20. They did the math. This is not being a, this is not being kind to our people. For those who are currently serving who will do 20, it's better. But they didn't do it to help you. They did it because it's going to save them money in the long run uh, because they're going to be able to, to basically double dip on the savings. There's going to be a donut hole of guys that aren't going to get either one. And that's that's a, a real opportunity. So the question will be, will they allow short-term soldiers to opt themselves voluntarily into the new program? That would be the best of both worlds for these guys to take uh, bullets being thrown at them uh, to, uh, to serve our nation. Um, next one, this is interesting. I'm not going to go deep into it, but I do want to talk about some of maybe the unseen... Um, possible ramifications of it. There's a video I was going to play for you, but it's a Japanese company that's doing this, and like 80% of the video is some dude talking in Japanese with subtitles, so I didn't figure you'd want to listen to that. I figure there's probably only maybe one-tenth of one percent of you guys that speak Japanese, uh, so I'm just going to give you the article. Uh, but the title of the article is Goodbye Soil, Researchers Grow Crops on Thin Films, and this is on Tom's Style Design and Technology blog. Um, here we go. Japanese researchers at Metamol have discovered an innovative new way to grow plants and crops, uh, substituting traditional soils with ultra-thin films made of hydrogel. The scientists have been able to successfully block out unwanted bacteria and viruses in soil that can be harmful for plants, essentially removing dirt from the equation. Plant roots grow alongside uh, a thin membrane of hydrogel that is a substance that is commonly found in diapers. The method isn't exactly perfect replacement to traditional growing methods since water is absorbed at a much slower rate. This means plant sizes are limited and only the healthiest and strongest variety plants can survive the hydrogel. Despite this limitation, the researchers have been able to successfully grow tomatoes, spinach, melons uh, with the film. The researchers were hoping to one day make the film strong enough to support the growth of trees. Uh, check the video out below to see hydrogel in action. My concerns here... Uh, number one, it, it's another attempt by science to negate the need for building soil. Soil is life. We don't feed plants, we feed soil, and soil feeds plants. That's the way that it generally works. Uh, this is going to rely, of course, on 100% synthetic fertilizers uh, for doing hydroponics and things. If you wanted to do this to grow lettuce, I, I don't really have a problem with it. And I think it, if used to bring growing things to places where normally we couldn't, like in the windows of high-rise buildings to provide some food for the people that live in the building, hey, I think it could be useful there. But if it can progress to a point where we can basically say we don't need soil anymore and we've already done this much damage because of what we can do with NPK fertilizer, what's this going to do? As far as blocking out you know, viruses and nematodes and all, when you build healthy systems and you plant plants that are appropriate for those systems, those problems generally solve themselves. Uh, and and this, the, the other thing that strikes me is only the strongest plants survive. Well, isn't that how nature works in a good system in the first place? So it's interesting. You can watch the video, um, but it does 
give me a little bit of a red flag of concern for some things. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about real briefly, I mentioned Jan earlier, Jan Klein. Apparently the city of Salem uh, is not real, uh, real liberty-oriented in some other aspects. Um, there is a, if you want to keep a chicken in the city of Salem, it's, uh, it, it's quite a, it's quite a process to do it. Um, there is an application that I'll link to today so that you can, uh, that you can, uh, down, you take, download it and take a look at how ridiculous it is. But to be able to keep like four chickens in your backyard, it's ten pages of legalese bullshit. Uh, let me read to you the six steps to being able to keep chickens, and just I'll leave it at that. Number one, first, build your chicken coop. So spend all the money to build your coop before we issue a permit, because we're going to come and inspect it. And if we don't like it, you've just wasted your money. Because step two is submit license application with fee. Step three, have your chicken coop inspected by a city of Salem uh, proper chicken coop inspector. Number four, receive your approved chicken license certificate. Number five, now you may stock your coop with chickens. And number six, of course, don't forget to pay us every freaking year for your renewals to keep four chickens in your bed. At least you can, I guess. Um, by the way, if you violate this ordinance, it's a fines up to $750 a day to keep chickens. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable how much legal language there is here in this thing. You have to look at it to appreciate the nonsense. So, doesn't surprise me, but, uh, this came to me from Zach and it says, uh, Jack, did not know if you saw their chicken permit link. Ridiculous, these guys. I live in Washington State, but when I moved up here, I also, uh, interviewed in Salem. Lucked out not to end up there. Apparently Salem hates chickens too, not just people with garage sales. Keep on rambling, Zach. So, uh, just thought I'd give you a little update on that. Uh, next site I have for you to take a look at today, and I think, I'm not sure, let me ask, um, real quick. I just checked with Dorothy. Uh, she's here at the office with me today, and um, she said, no, they have not gotten back to us. But the website's called Podponics, and it looks kind of cool, and it's a little, it looks like hydroponics light to me. And if you go to their website, they have things set up like where they're able to grow food right in the middle of a downtown area inside a shipping container with artificial lighting and these little dishes that, to me, look an awful lot like... Uh, well, they look an awful lot like the little styrofoam bowls that you get at, at a grocery store, you know, like for, for when people come over to eat. And uh, here's my problem with the site. Number one, we got in touch with them. We haven't heard back. So I don't know if there's actually people doing anything or if this is just a theory. Um, there's no way to buy this stuff. So I don't know if their whole point is their company's basically going to grow and sell the produce or do they want to sell the systems but I can't, like, click to buy. I mean, I would buy a little bit of this and try it out and throw it on YouTube for you guys. Uh, but if anybody could tell me where I can actually get in touch with somebody that will talk to us from Podponics or where I can buy their stuff uh, or if it's a real deal or not, I'd appreciate it. But you might want to check their site out. It actually looks to me like it's nothing really that revolutionary. Uh, it looks like something anybody could just do. Uh, but check it out and uh, let me know your thoughts on it in today's show comments. Uh, next one comes today from Stan. Stan says, 
Hi, Jack. We're looking for a property in the Four Corners area. Have our eye on a certain property for a while. The only issue I have come across so far on this property is an issue with methane in the well water. Have you done any research on this issue, or do you have any experience with it? I've come across some filtration products on the Internet that seem to be able to make the water usable, but I don't have much experience with this problem. Any thoughts you have would help. Additionally, I wanted to say I'm really enjoying the MSB account. Uh, that I won when you had the 99 Luff Balloon question. I really do appreciate the podcast each day and have learned so much since I started listening over two years ago. Your approach is balanced and interesting. Thank you for the MSB account and for all that you're doing. I've really enjoyed some of the hands-on step-by-step videos you've done in the past. I know you're busy and think they're really helpful for your audience. There are so many topics you have knowledge and experience on. We'll really appreciate some more when you have time. Thanks again, Jack. We're going to be doing a lot more videos, folks. Um, most of the stuff we want to do, we want to do outside. And it's been like 100 billion degrees this summer. And uh, I just don't look good on camera dripping in sweat. So we've kind of planned that like as a big August push for some video. We have a cool banner for the Self-Reliance Expo we're having made. And maybe we'll drape that behind me on the deck. And I think that'll make the production quality of the videos a little bit better. On your question about methane in the water, if I was looking at a piece of property that had methane contaminating the groundwater, I wouldn't even think about buying it for a second. I would cross it off my list and look at another place. And I know it might break your heart because it might look otherwise like the perfect place. But it's going to make anything you do difficult, if not impossible. The water would have to be filtered for any livestock. It would have to be filtered to be used uh, for plant life. And I don't even know if you can really do a good job of... It's just too expensive. And this is a big deal. And the big deal I wanted to kind of talk about with real estate today. When you're shopping for land or house, you must be willing to walk away from any deal or you will sooner or later make a dumb decision. It's how people get into jumbo loans they can't afford. It's how people end up with adjustable mortgages. It's how people end up living next to a turd they can't stand. All of these things come into play because we fall in love with the property. Realize there's always another property. You fell in love with one, you can fall in love with another. It's much easier to find a new property love than a new person you love. Trust me, there's lots of it out there. Keep looking. Do not invest in property that's had its groundwater contaminated. I personally wouldn't do it. It has me completely rethinking my view on the positive aspects of natural gas drilling. It seems to be that the, the fracturing uh, and the uh, the drilling of the wells themselves is what's causing this. It's ruined ranch lands in Texas. It's, uh, it's, it's really a problem. I think that we can extract natural gas without doing it, but I don't think that uh, the companies are doing the best job that can be done. Understand, they have a financial incentive to not let it happen. One, they open themselves to liabilities. But two, every bit of that gas that fracks out into the surrounding area and, and releases through groundwater or, or natural venting or something like that is gas they lose. Right, they don't get the gas either. So um, it's not that they want to do this just to be evil or anything, but it's something that I really, uh, I really, I wouldn't touch the land. Is the short answer there? Uh, sorry to tell you that. I know there's times when you really, really have fallen for a piece of land and want it, but this is not one of the times to give into that. Uh, next up today, I want to play. I'm only going to play part of the video because it's like 10 minutes long. I'm going to play about three minutes of it for you. But this is a video about what's happening to some people living in Los Angeles County out in the desert. I'm going to play this for you, and then I'll be back and give you some thoughts on it. And I'll provide a link where you can watch the entire documentary today as well. Nobody has bothered us until last year. The 29th of June, 
that was uh, the beginning of my ni nightmare. I'm getting scared. I'm really getting scared. You know, um, I barely make it on what I have now. This desolate patch of desert on the outskirts of Los Angeles County is known as the Antelope Valley. Few people want to live here, and the collection of rugged individualists who do are being chased away by what the county officials call nuisance abatement teams. Armed county inspection squads that target zoning and code violations. The plight of these desert dwellers made regional headlines when Kim Fahey's home, known as Phonehenge, was raided by a nuisance abatement team. A colorful castle built by Fahey himself out of old telephone poles, Phonehenge was a gift to the media, which covered the county's prosecution of Fahey as an offbeat human interest story. But Fahey was convicted of 12 misdemeanors. He's been jailed and forced to destroy his own home. So have many other valley property owners targeted by the county's code enforcement forces, and many of these folks have even fewer resources than Fahey. This guy had this property for sale for a good price. So I came out here and looked at it and said, wow, this is pretty, pretty cool. Joey Gallo is a retired Army veteran who served during the Vietnam era. Last year, the county began performing unannounced inspections on his property. Government came out and they told me that my bushes and stuff out here had to be cut back. I said, okay, no problem. Gallo says he cooperated with the county, clearing brush, then moving a shed, then getting rid of his motorhome. Finally, the county made a demand that shocked him. They told me, you know, you have to get off the property. I said, you know, I get off the property. He says, well, yeah, you can't live here. Gallo says county officials told him that neighbors, whom they would not identify, had complained about unsightly structures on his property. He could keep his land, they told him, but would not be allowed to live on it. I looked at them and I said, well, for what? My closest neighbor is like a half a mile away. We're not living in Beverly Hills here. This is my home. All of a sudden, I got police at my front door, bulletproof vests, guns, and then they surrounded the place. Everything I worked for, you know, was like, like just melting away from me. I don't know where I'm going to go. I really don't. Miles from Gallo, in a remote corner of the Antelope Valley, Oscar Castaneda has also been ordered to destroy his own property. Castaneda is a mechanic and a Seventh-day Adventist preacher, and he also happens to own the church where the movies Kill Bill 1 and 2 were shot. Like many of the residents here, Castaneda and his wife grow their own food, supply their own power with solar panels, and their own water from a well. Their green energy lifestyle is a choice, not subsidized by the government. As a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we believe in living independent of the city, living by yourself. Castaneda lived in the desert for 22 years without any help from or problems with the government. That changed last year. The city and some other cars drew right into my property. They said that they were here to help me. And I don't know in which way they are helping me. The government officials, who had entered without a warrant, left after taking pictures, says Castaneda. But this was the first of many visits. If you don't know the rights, you don't have any. So when they came the first time, the second time, the third time, and the fourth time, 
I didn't know that I had to ask them for a warrant. Members of the nuisance abatement team began pointing out compliance problems, too many vehicles on the property, improper water tank, and so on. All of these, the county said to him, are a nuisance and a danger to his neighbors. Right here, going uh, uh, looking north, there is no neighbor. There are one and two abandoned houses. I don't have no neighbors over here, let's say 10 miles, and no neighbors over here, another 10 miles. So I'm living in the middle of nowhere, okay, and I'm not bothering anyone. The county ordered Castaneda to get a building permit to keep his home on the property but will not issue a permit unless he connects to the county's power grid and drills a new water well. Between $75,000 and $100,000 to bring the electricity to my lot. The only way I have is move out of here. As a matter of fact, I already started doing that. Now, damn it, that just pisses me off. And, and, and the upshot of this thing is... Uh, it looks like the county may want to develop this area. If you watch the whole thing, there's someone later that basically they'll give him a new permit, but he has to hook up to city electricity uh, and city water. Uh, even though he's completely off-grid and doing the green thing and has a low-carbon footprint the way all these ass clowns in L.A. County say they want people to live. I mean, what is what is the benefit to anybody by this? In fact... The people that put this together from Reason TV went to a county meeting, Los Angeles County meeting, because nobody would talk to them from the government. And they asked a guy in the public comment section, you know, what are you doing this for? Why and how does this help anybody? And they just had a lady, he couldn't even clarify for himself. He's a freaking coward. Like all of these ass clowns in government, a freaking coward that needs his ass kicked, honestly. Really does. I mean, uh, says... Uh, what do we say? Uh, they said, we are not required to respond. This is just your time to comment, which basically means you can say whatever you want, uh, but nobody's going to answer your questions publicly. Uh, so you can watch the rest of the damn thing if you want to, but this is why I say to get the hell away from certain areas of the country. These people are as far away as they can be, but they're still in L.A. County. Well, L.A. County is full of freaking greedy ass clowns. Right? That's who runs L.A. County. If you want to see the inner workings and the, the mental midgetry in L.A. County. Look at the season two, what there is of it, of Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution, where all the guy was trying to do was improve the quality of food for children in the L.A. County school system, and you'll see this guy at a public meeting from a totally different person act the exact same way. This is the M.O. for these jackasses out there in L.A. County. Citizens of Los Angeles County, you need to stand up to this. There's a small group of people you'll see in the video if you watch the whole thing standing up to it. You guys need to stand up to this. Um, this is one of these causes where I'll back you wearing as I can, but I don't know what we can do for you out there. It's about time that you guys out there, the silent majority in L.A. County, became a vocal majority. Pushing people off their land, living in the middle of a desert, 10 miles from the nearest neighbor because they're supposedly a nuisance, is complete, total Bullshit. And this is where some of the conspiracy theorists start to look like they're making some sense to me because what is the goal here other than to prevent people from living the way that they want to? Personally, though, if you're looking for abandoned wasteland to do this type of thing in, anything with any county that has a major ass clown metropolis like Los Angeles in it, get into a different county. Because these ass clowns, this is what they do. Because they have nothing better. Apparently, apparently, 
given the fact that the state of California is freaking bankrupt, Los Angeles, the city, is freaking bankrupt, and L.A. County is freaking bankrupt, they still have the time, money, and resources to go harass a bunch of people living in the freaking desert. You people in California, if you don't stand up now, you're going over the cliff of the last of the freedom that you have. You're already a socialist uh, oligarchy out there. It's up to you guys to turn the tide again. If there's some way we can help the survival podcast community here, can help these people, we'll get behind them and do it. I just don't know what we can do right now, but I'm calling on you guys out there. When you see something like this going on in your community, I don't care if you're in L.A. or Florida or Georgia or Texas or anywhere, if you see this going on in a place where your people that you vote for are doing it, you get your neighbors together and damn well do something about it. Um, you know, We have people right now that are going to go to jail for selling bunny rabbits. That's another story. I don't have time to cover today, but but that's come out as well recently. It's time to draw a line in the sand and remind these ass clowns that they are there to serve the public, not to rule over us. Uh, next one comes to me from Aaron. Aaron says, Jack, just listen to your interview with Baldy about the pre uh, previous U.S. defaults and was amazed that you mentioned Gresham's Law. I'm a senior at Boise State University studying economics. I read and listened to a lot of educational economic stuff, but as yet little on money and banking. Uh, let me read it again. I am a senior at Boise State University studying economics. I read and listen to a lot of educational economic stuff, but as of yet, little on money and banking. So apparently, uh, if you get an economics degree from Boise State University, they don't teach you about money and banking. Okay, Just two days prior to listening to your podcast, I listened to Murray Rothband's A History of Money and Banking in the United States. This was the first time that I had heard of Gresham's Law. You had posted the interview a couple of weeks before this. You understood it before I did. This really illustrated the difference between an education and a degree. I work full-time and going to school full-time, so it's hard to get both a degree and an education. Keep up the good work and keep educating people. A lot of people don't realize it, but listening to TSP in many ways beats a college education for learning. Thanks for all you do. I find it very interesting that a person about to complete a degree in economics from a, a very well-known organization, Boise State University, says that it is difficult to get both a degree and an education. That's, that's saying something about the quality of education in our higher learning systems today and practical application. This is what I want to start asking you to think about if you're going to go to college. What type of capital are you going to come away with? Remember our discussion on capital? What experiential capital will you have after completing your degree? What hands-on knowledge internal capital will you have? How much financial capital will you give in return for how much intellectual capital you're going to get back? Um, you know, Start thinking about it that way, and maybe we'll start. See, I'm not against colleges and higher institutions of learning. My son's in college. Uh, trying to finish up a couple years in, in, in four. Um, but uh, there's a purpose for it, and we need to make sure that we're getting the value that we're putting in. And I think it's time for the customer, who is the student, to start asking the university to deliver a little bit more with how much they're charging our kids to go to school and putting them in debt for the rest of their life. Uh, next one of me comes from Sean. Sean says, let's say things end up going real bad. Unemployment is 70% or more. These, and these people are unable to make their house payments. Do you think the banks are going to try and foreclose on all the people? I'll be debt-free next spring except for the house. I'm also pretty well prepared then as well. 
I live on a two-acre peninsula on a smaller rural lake in Minnesota with a lot of garden space. I'm planning on this being a bug-in location. Thanks for your reply. Thanks for your podcast. Lots of good information. Okay, first of all, we're not going to ever have 70% unemployment. If you have 70% unemployment, you're going to go past a tipping point where you end up with 100% unemployment. Okay, There's a, a, a dynamic to society where when jobs become scarce enough, people begin to employ themselves uh, and begin to barter. Right, So you will never get to a point where 70% of the people are laying around not working. Besides, we need at least 50% of the working to pay for the 50% that don't and to provide for the 50% that don't. So it can't go that high. But your question is valid if we look at it another way. If we have enough foreclosures, we'll eventually a bank go, we don't even want to foreclose because we can't foreclose. Like sort of what already happened. All of this, you know, bailout and loan modification, everything. Banks had so many houses to foreclose on. It was costing them more than it was worth to foreclose on them. And what good is taking back a house that you can't sell? So let's say you owe me uh, $120,000 on your home and I'm the bank of Jack. And you can't pay anymore. So I say, screw you, you're out and I repossess your house. Assuming I can sell your house for $120,000 and write a new mortgage and replace you with basically a new tenant because it's more like a landlord arrangement than we realize, um, it makes sense for me to foreclose on your house. If I can dump your house for 100 and I only lose 20 and I've also milked you for 5 or 10 years first, um, then I, it might make sense for me to do that. If I'm going to foreclose on your house, throw you out, and then sit on your house for 2 or 3 years or more because I can't sell it anyway... I really don't want to foreclose on your house. right? So the government creates situations where we can short sell your house and you get screwed and I get paid twice. And that's one way that we mitigated this in the past. And that was part of the deals, the closed door, back door deals that were made by destroying the private enterprise system to save it. Uh, that, that's some of the things that were done that nobody even really talked about uh, other than me. I did talk about it quite a bit and played some information for you off of YouTube on it as well. Um, but there is a point at which if there's enough foreclosures, banks decide to go a different route. And usually it involves loan modification. So let's say you owe me $120,000 and your total house payment, taxes, insurance, everything is about $1,200. bucks. Now, the taxes and insurance you're going to have to keep paying, but let's say that's about 300 of the equation. And what you're actually paying me out of the 1200 is about uh, $900. So I say to you, let's do this. We'll refinance your loan or we'll modify your loan and cut the underlying value. And instead of paying 900 to me, you're going to pay 700 to me. And you actually can make that work. Or six, whatever it is you can make work. As long as I can keep cash flow coming in, because I have, it's not like, it's not like a landlord for the bank. The bank's in a better position than the landlord. The bank doesn't have an expense to maintain the house at all. You do. So they've already made the loan. They've already put the capital at risk. As long as they can keep cash flow out of you, they're better off than foreclosing on your home. The problem for the banks is most loan modifications go into default within 12 months again. But at least they can get through that 12 months with some cash flow out of you. And then they'll foreclose on your ass at that point. Uh, hopefully then the, the inventory is drawn up a little bit. It makes more sense. But yes, there is a point where banks decide we really don't want to take any more houses. Hell, there's a point where banks don't want any more money. If you put $50 million in Mellon Bank of New York right now, they're going to charge you a fee to hold your money instead of pay you interest. So uh, things, strange things happen in strange times. Um, 
This one comes from Tim in Ohio, and Tim says, I'd like to formally recommend this representative from my home site for your Ask Clown of the Day award. Sorry, Tim, can't give it to him. The Ask Clown in L.A. County gets Ask Clown of the freaking day. Um, but this is this is definitely here. No political overturns here. I just can't believe the citizens at a public building would not be allowed to videotape an elected official. Outrageous. And what's interesting is this elected official is a Republican. We hear about this sometimes coming from uh, Democrats. Let me read to you a little bit of this. And there's a video you can watch when you go there. Uh, Monday night at a town hall meeting in North Avondale featuring U.S. Rep. Stephen Chabot, uh, video cameras owned by two Democratic activists were seized by a Cincinnati police officer at the direction of uh, Chabot's sheriff. Uh, a Chabot spokesman said that the cameras, uh, or the direction of Chabot's staff, a Shabbat spokesman said that they had the camera seized to protect the privacy of the constituents at the event, although there were at least two media outlets at the North Avondale Recreation Center filming the meeting. Tim Burke, the chairman of the Hamilton County Democratic Party, has written a letter to Cincinnati City Solicitor John Coop asking for an explanation of the legal basis for the seizure and enforcement by Cincinnati police of rules created by the congressman. Signs were taped to the doors of the hall Monday night meeting held saying that no video cameras were allowed inside. But David Little, a Cincinnati Democrat working uh, with Progress Ohio, a liberal organization, and Liz Ping, a Democrat who ran unsuccessfully for Ohio House last year, were taking video at the event. Uh, Little was using an iPhone video camera, uh, while Ping, who was taping the meeting for the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee, was using flip video camera mounted on a stand. About 100 pres persons were present, most of whom were clearly not supporters of the 1st District Republican congressman. All right, you can read the rest of the article if you want. Here's the thing. This is where it pisses me off that people are partisan. Um, I guarantee you, if the same thing happened... Uh, to a, and a Democratic congressman wanted the Huffington Post and everybody would be rallying the troops and saying this is horrible that these, the, you know, the, this poor congressman is being, uh, persecuted just for enforcing a basic rule of no videoing. Right? Um, and I, I'm sure here that they're going to take up the charge about how bad this is, but flip it around and would they still be there? I, 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 I don't know. You know? This is wrong though, and here's why it's wrong. It's a public meeting by a public official in a public area. So just because he decides he doesn't want to videotape, what gives him the authority to say you can't do it? Is there a city or a town law that says when there's a public meeting here it can't be taped without a permit or something? Which would be bullshit as well. But at least it would go through a legal process. This guy's just creating rules because he feels like he can because he's a congressman. This man needs to go. You people in this man's district, this guy's got to go. If you want a Republican, get a new one in the next election. But this ass clown has to go. When did we lose our common sense in this country? When did we lose... The concept that when you were speaking in public as a public official, you were on the freaking record and any public citizen, especially your constituent, had a right to put you on the record. You know, it's not like these people were causing a disruption. They were just sitting there videotaping. It's not like this was a private meeting. There were media people there. But media will show what media chooses to. The private citizen can show whatever they want. See, and I think we need to, when we go to these meetings, you know what? This, this kind of bullshit, every single person, whether you support the guy talking or not, pull out the iPhone. A thousand iPhones trained on every person whenever they're talking in a meeting like this. They can't take them all, and they can't throw everybody out. 
it, it, there's a time to stand up and we're, I mean, if you haven't heard enough to make you feel that, that way today, man, where's your pulse? Um, next one, I've heard a lot of people saying, give us some more personal stories about people who have uh, been impacted by the uh, Survival Podcast. So here's one for you. And I'm actually going to try to get this gal online because she took a PDC uh, with Bill Wilson up at Midwest Permaculture. She'll mention that here. And I'd like to get somebody on that's taken one to talk about the experience. Anyway, um, this comes from Trinity. And Trinity says, My husband and I have listened to you since show 9 or 10. At first, I grudgingly listened. I had already been burned by the prepper ideology during the Y2K frenzy. We were young and newly married and ignorant. We spent money we didn't really have on food and supplies we never used. So my mind was closed to you and your message. My husband talked about you for months before I would even listen to you once. Finally, he bribed me with a promise to help me paint our living room. I listened and was hooked, and my new paint looked great. I was, it wasn't long, however, before I became discouraged. We had three little girls and another on the way. My husband worked two jobs, and we homeschooled our two daughters, taught firearms classes, raised a small guard, and the list goes on and on. Overall, our life was good, but we didn't have many of the things you spoke of. No extra food or money, very few skills, and we were really... Uh, were really useful other than our firearms training, and I'm a good cook. I became so afraid and felt completely overwhelmed uh, by all we were not doing. At the time, I felt uh, stretched to the limit and already yet res- and already yet responsible to prepare uh, better for our family. Then one day, the air conditioner was broken on our old model Suburban, and it was hot, humid day. We had all loaded the kids into the truck on our way to a full day of errands and appointments. I realized I forgot my huge grocery list and a pile of bills to pay at home with no time to return for them. Damn those pregnancy hormones. Now my to-do list is even longer, and that list, I'm, I freaking forgot it too. I cannot describe how frustrated and inadequate I felt. It all just overtook me. I really didn't want to go on. For a while, I had serious thoughts of just leaving home and my family. They deserve better than I could provide. My poor husband, trying to lighten the mood, plugs in the iPod. I know he wants to, he wants to listen to you. Effing Jack Spirigo, the man who at my age has accomplished so much. Who can keep up with you? Another day, another dollar. As you did the housekeeping, those dark feelings of failure overtook me, and I had hot tears gathered in my eyes. The subject of the podcast was revolution and how to be part of it. I distinctively remember thinking, I want to revolt. I want out. Uh, tiredness in every fiber of my body and mind was winning. How I wished in that moment I was still ignorant, blind, following the crowd, being normal. I wasn't sure I loved anything or anyone enough to keep it all up without some some source of return. It seemed that no matter how much I was doing, it was never enough. As you kept talking, I became numb inside and realized I was listening to you. You weren't giving tips on dehydrating, water storage, or making biltong. You should have heard my reaction to that. Everything went quiet around me when you spoke these words. If you, if you have a tomato plant in a pot on your apartment windowsill, you are part of the revolution. What you do matters. I did have a tomato plant in a pot, and I just eaten the first tomato from it. My relief was so profound. I began bawling. I'm crying now as I remember the moment. My husband and kids thought I had finally gone insane. I laughed and cried simultaneously. It became a mantra. What I do matters. I am the revolution. Since that podcast, my perspective on you, your show, and our lives did a complete turnaround. Optimism flooded all over uh, my doubts and about my beliefs and the way we had chosen to live. I became proud of my ragtag garden instead of ashamed, proud of that we homeschooled our children and made, our ki- made sure our kids would grow up knowing their parents. I realized I didn't have to do it all, just what worked for us. 
Don't get me wrong. That particular day, you weren't my favorite person. It was very easy to blame you for my bad day. So it wasn't that Jack said it was the truth. Truth that was brought to light and clarity into my heart. And you had the guts and wisdom to say it. Thank you. Uh, now, about two years later, I have just earned my PDC for Midwest Permaculture. Hey, congratulations on that. Uh, we have a suburban garden that feeds six people fruit and veggies for half a year with more than enough for sharing and storing. We have learned to dehydrate. We can all sorts of food. Maybe I'll even try biltong. Our freezer, pantries, and cabinets are full of good food. We like to eat, and best of all, we know how to grow, hunt, and trade for more. My commitment to my husband and family is joyful and fresh. I have an abundance in every aspect of my life. I'm content, happy, and peaceful from the inside out. I'm confident in the abilities, knowledge, and skills that have been developed in me by the grace of God, his love towards me, and the guidance of your show. Jack, your willingness and dedication to follow your heart sparked a passion for living a better life that grows in our souls day by day. So now I will say to you, along with thousands of other listeners, what you do matters. Thank you, thank you, thank you. With deepest respect, Trinity. That's awesome, folks. I I, I don't have anything to add. Uh, she pretty much said all of it. But uh, if I don't remember to say it often enough, uh, every single person listening, what you do matters. And I think that that's one of the most profound things that can empower any person out there. Your actions matter. What you do matters. And what I've seen this community do to impact people recently is uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's definitely shown that what we do matters, and that what I do on the air every day matters uh, more than I ever realized. When you have something to share like that, please send it in. If you want it read on the air, let me know. If you want to share it with me personally and don't read it on the air, uh, I won't do that. Just just tell me that. And I get stuff like this all the time, and I probably should share more of them. But a lot of people uh, tend not to want to let things out like that. I wish more of you would, though. I wish more of you would be empowered and brave and tell people your transformational stories. Um, from that story to the story of a veteran who, who sat one day in his bed with a forty-five to his temple to put his life back together, um, when you have a story like that, it's too powerful to hold it in. Let other people know because somebody just might need to hear it. Um, next one comes from Brent. Brent says, uh, Brent and Prince Edward Island, okay to use my name. <laughs> Brent always says that. Uh, short, thoughts on using a temporary car garage as a greenhouse. Long, assemble the aluminum frame, throw 5 mil poly wrap around it, fasten it down, good to go. I've seen 10 by 10 by 8 for 149 Canadian. That's probably about 200 US now. Galvanized steel tubing, no rust. I searched the web and no one seemed to have a clued in on this. You can also buy 10 by 20 foot versions. I'm currently using that as a wood shelter. I'm a bit challenged in the carpentry department, Jack. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. I mean, it's going to be much more sturdy and, and, and durable than doing it out of PVC or something like that. Uh, I guess you're going to end up with all of the, uh, the siding. You're going to have to figure out what to do with. But uh, that's a great idea. I don't know if it's what I'll do. I kind of have a vision of what I want my greenhouse to look like. but uh, and, and I don't want to do poly. I want to do the paneling. That's more of a permanent structure. But uh, it seems like a really great way to do things. And if you can get a 10 by 10 for 149 bucks, then a 10 by 20 is probably going to be about 300. So 300 bucks for a 10 by 20 greenhouse, and all you do is add the poly. And of course, it's going to have hinges and doors and window frame outs and things like that. And you could probably use some of the stuff that comes with it for that, or you know, fabricate things to use those fittings. What a great idea, Brent! Uh, I, I say go for it, man. And uh, anybody out there that does one, send me a picture of it. I'd love to see it. 
Uh, last thing I'm going to f- uh, finish up with today uh, that I have to kind of do a retraction from last week's show. I talked about a 13-year-old scientist who had discovered that using the Fibonacci sequence and arranging solar panels more like leaves on a tree had improved the efficiency of the panels. I reported that as accurate because the international community of science and, and, and different publications had reported it as being verified. So I took the sources that were you know double verified to be double verified. But apparently um, there's a blog that has already debunked this and shown that it actually doesn't improve the efficiency. So I'll link to that today. Um, I'm going to say this, though. Number one, I think this kid's still a friggin' genius to even try it. Number two, I'm not sure it's fully debunked. I think maybe the, the, the raw output numbers... Uh, were, were taken out of context because it was voltage versus actual, you know, amps and watts. Um, but, but, I wonder if this is experimented with enough if it couldn't lead to arrays that are more efficient throughout the day. So maybe they're not better all the time, but maybe they're better enough times that they actually improve things. It's hard to argue with the basic premise of the debunking, though, is if I take a panel and I put it where that individual panel is going to get the optimum amount of sunlight it's capable of from a day, and I take another panel and put it somewhere else, the second panel would be better off oriented the same way. Um, but I do think there might be something to this, and I hope that this young man, as he's been proven wrong, uh, does what good scientists should do when proven wrong. Take it to another level and see what else he can learn from it. And I finished with that because that's what I want you guys to do. When you have adversity in your prepping, in your homesteading, in your lives, that's what I want you to do. I don't want you to, to quit. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to collapse on yourself. I want you to take it to another level. I want you to figure out a way around things. If you can't get through a wall, start going sideways. Um, go under it. Go over it. Don't ram your head into it. There are points where you get to a point where determination is great. But if you think about a fly in a window, and he's like, freedom is by turning 180 degrees around and flying somewhere else. But most flies will die in the window. We're smarter than flies, people. We really are. I don't know. Maybe that ass clown that's running things out in L.A. County that's throwing people off their land in the desert, he might be as stupid as a freaking fly. You know, and I, I hope somebody plays this for you someday, Jackass. You're as dumb as a fly. How about that? And I'm in Arkansas. There's nothing you can do about me calling you dumb as a fly. Um, but if you're not him, think. Use your God-given brain, as my father-in-law would say. Use your God-given brain. You have so much intelligence. Even people that don't think they're smart, you are. You're smarter than anything else that walks this planet. If you'll just use what you have, when you have adversity in your life, remember, what you do does matter. You are the revolution as long as you keep fighting. And use that brain and figure out how to get to the next level, how to get to where you want to be, because no one's going to do it for you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. 
Yeah.